So the trees of the Bible, the great oak, certainly perhaps a, a story that we remember from childhood, from Sunday school class, if we had the privilege of, of going in our earlier years. We want to look at uh, four things from this passage. First of all, the rebellion under which this is taking place. Secondly, the providence of God that we see happening here. Thirdly, this assassination of Absalom. And then fourthly, obviously the most important, the contrast of David's other son. So, the rebellion, the providence, the assassination, and the contrast. As we think of this rebellion, we, we really need to go back to chapter 14, where we have a description of Absalom given to us. In chapter 14, verse 25, we read the following in regards to Absalom, who is the son of David. He's the king's son. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. He's a good looking guy. A very good-looking man, as the Bible describes it. The crown of his looks is his hair. An amazing head of hair that must have grown not only thick, but it must have grew long in the course of a year as well, given the weight that is being signified by that hair. I know some of you have grown out your hair from time to time in order that you might donate it to locks of love and you can probably think of the amount of hair you had cut off and how light that actually was given how much it was and yet here we have quite a bit of weight and so we're given an understanding of that. So we have to understand who Absalom is. He's David's son, a very good looking guy with significant hair. But it's his actions that we need to understand as well. Not just his appearance. For that we might say, well, you know, he's a good looking guy. He can't help that. His hair is pretty good looking stuff. He can't help that, right? That too is in the providence of God. But the question is, what does he do with his looks? What does he do with his appearance? Well, as we look at his actions in those chapters before we get to chapter 18, we know that, one, Absalom has been involved in a murder. He murdered his brother Ammon. Now, Ammon himself is a no good. He's a horrible man. He did de a detestable action, and we might all conclude he deserved it, but it's not in Absalom's power to make that decision. He took the law into his own hands and indeed murdered his brother. 
or had his brother executed might be the more technical way of saying it. He was involved in that. That led to a long time of separation between him and David. They're at a new speaking level. And even when they come back and finally are reunited, Absalom twists and distorts what is going on for his own benefit to take away the hearts of the people from following the true king, David, to following him. See, he has his eyes on the prize. He has his eyes on being king. He thinks he deserves it. He thinks he can lay claim to it. Part of the reason, perhaps, he got rid of Ammon. It was not so much his anger at what his brother had done, but that his brother Ammon stood in line for the throne. With Ammon out of the way, it would appear that Absalom is the one. But he's conniving. He's lying to the people. They come to the gate to, to get judgment from David. Judgment that we learn in Samuel is right and upright. It's righteous. It's equitable. He's a good judge. And the people come to David because they're seeking justice. But Absalom intervenes. Before they get there, he stops and he says, hey, you know, my dad's really busy today. He doesn't really have time for your case. My, my dad is, you know, he's kind of gone over the top now and he, he just doesn't have time for all of you people. But I do. I love you people. So you bring your cases to me and I'll decide those cases. And thereby we learn that he won the hearts of the people which results ultimately in an outright military rebellion against David. There are chapters previous to chapter 18 in which it's described in great detail how David has to slink out of Jerusalem because the forces of, of Absalom are so strong and so powerful. He comes into Jerusalem and he sleeps out in the open with David's concubines, thereby laying claim to the throne. They're in a military battle. David is slinking off to the side with a few troops that are following him. He's laid claim to the throne illegitimately. It's not his throne. It's David's throne. But he has usurped the king. Then we find a little bit more about Absalom after he's dead and buried, right? He had erected, so chapter 18 told us, a monument to himself. Now what does that tell you? What does that tell you about a person who would erect a monument to himself? This isn't a monument to George Washington well past the time he lived or a monument to Abraham Lincoln well past the time he lived. This is him saying, I want a monument and I'm going to build it. And in fact, we're going to call it Absalom's Monument. Let's us know that he's a man of great pride, a man of great arrogance man who thinks he's in 
charge, a man who thinks he is in control. This is the rebellion that is going on. But in the providences of God, in the work of God, this man full of providence with the with excuse me, full of pride with the support of of most of Israel behind him. With the love and adoration of the people. Joins into battle with his own father's troops. That's what's happening in 2 Samuel 18. That's what we're being introduced to. This this battle that is taking place. David giving commands uh, as they're going to engage Absalom and this rebellion. Because they decide they have to deal with it or Absalom is just going to hunt them down and kill them. To get rid of them. As the battle takes place, one of the things we have to understand is this. David's forces, although we're told he has commanders of hundreds and commanders of thousands, is a much smaller force than that which Absalom has. David has some loyalists from Judah on his side. The rest of the nation, the rest of the tribes are all behind Absalom. In the providences of God, we know the outcome. The outcome is David wins. And David wins not because of some great military strategy. David wins out of the providence of God. It is God who is directing these events. It is God who is highlighting the fact that it is David who is king and not this insurrectionist, not Absalom. So as we just think about the battle itself, the size of the forces that are engaging one another, and the fact that we know from the reading this morning in chapter 18 that David's forces are going to win. Even though David is not present, even the one who is the great leader, the great commander, the great military genius, he's at home. And yet they win. Because it's God's providence that they win. But there is something else in the providence of God to work into this. Yes, he wins. But part of the win has to do with where they're fighting. We are told in chapter 18 that they are in the forest of Ephraim. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The forest of Ephraim is a bunch of hills and valleys covered with trees. Now, not trees like we might think of a forest. Trees that are low, a lot of scrub trees, a lot of brush. That's the forest of Ephraim. That's where the battle is engaged. Now, why there? Because 
Absalom's pride is so great, he is willing to go and engage this fight in the one place that is going to take away his tactical advantage of superiority of troops. In a thick forest, you can't maneuver those troops. The advantage is to a small fleet force. Dr. Tim knows all about that from the Revolutionary War. Right? A small fleet force running through the forest here and there compared to trying to move thousands and thousands and thousands of men in a normal field of battle. But you see, Absalom's pride leads him into that. That's the providence of God. He brings them to the place where their strength is now their weakness. And where the weakness of David is now strength. It is a great advantage to fight this battle in the forest of Ephraim. Not amongst the cedars of Lebanon, but in the scrub bushes of the hills and valleys. So much so that when we read about this battle, what do we read? They killed 20,000 men. David's men killed 20,000. But did you read the, and listen and hear the description later? That the forest itself devoured more men than were killed. That means more than 20,000 of Absalom's forces are in some way called to surrender or they meet their death as a result of being in that particular place, rather than out on the plain somewhere, rather than out in a valley somewhere, an open country. So much so that it's a defeat. And Absalom knows it. He takes off running on his mule. Ruth Lucas is probably thinking, yeah, that white mule of uh, John Boy Walton, right? He can really make it go, Ruth says. Takes off on his mule. And what happens? Verse 9, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast. In the oak. Now I know it doesn't say his hair. It says his head, right? Could it have been the hair of his head? Obviously. Is it likely? Yes. Can we say categorically it was? Well, it doesn't say by his hair. It says by his head. But I think we've all been here, right? We've all been in this circumstance. We're, we're walking through some scrub brush, right? We're ducking here, we're ducking there, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, some branch comes up and catches us. But look at what he is. He's riding a mule, and he's riding with great speed. He's not 
He's not, he, he's not looking. He's probably looking behind him. He's probably wondering, how close are they? How close are they? How close are they? And he catches his head. Perhaps his hair. It would be fitting if it were his hair, wouldn't it? In that great oak. Oh, the providences of God. That isn't just bad luck that day. There is no luck. It's all by the sovereignty of God. This was by the plan and purposes of God. As Absalom meets his end, God wants him hanging from a tree. Oh, catch that. As Absalom makes his end, he wants him to be hanging from a tree. In fact, the text tells us, right, that he is there between heaven and earth. Suspended. Unable to free himself. Unable to come down. Thirdly, then, we have the assassination. David had given a command. Be nice to him. If you catch him, be nice to him. Don't harm him. Now, there's some great question as far as what happens. Is Joab in disobedience to David? Or is David's command an unbiblical command? Is Joab doing that which should have been done in the first place? Well, I think we Thursday morning examined this story enough of Absalom killing Ammon that the conclusion would be David should have had him executed. He's a murderer. David didn't do that. But now the execution's going to be done by the hand of God through Joab. So even though David has given this command, we have Joab taking specific actions. One, he encounters this guy who reports the scene. And he's livid over the fact that the guy let him go. Joab's approach is this. If Absalom gets himself down from that tree and is still alive, he's going to recoup his forces and we're going to have to deal with more battles and there are more men who are going to die. You should have killed him. The guy's response is, well, I heard the command. He doesn't know everything that has happened in the past. He's just a soldier. I heard the command, I'm following the command. Besides, if I had done that, I'm pretty sure I know your character, Joab, and you just would have said, yeah, well, I don't have nothing to do with it. I didn't tell him to do it. And I would have been toast before the king. And Joab just kind of dismissed, enough of this. I'll handle it myself. And he takes three javelins. Now, before we're starting to think of these things that get thrown in the Olympics, okay, these things are more like, darts, okay, but pretty big darts, not the little darts, okay, that we throw, but darts about like this long with a needle on them uh, uh, about this long that they would throw, they would carry them on them, and he takes three of them, and he nails 
Absalom right in the heart. Let me ask you a question. Is Absalom dead? No. Three direct blows to the heart. And he is still fighting for life. He's still struggling. He's still in rebellion. So what does Joab do? Finish him off. Ten of his men, young men, armor bearers. Yeah, it's not pleasant. But the word of the Lord pretty much puts it before us, right? Verse 15. They surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. He's hanging in the tree. Taking their swords, hacking away. We're going to make sure this is done. But there's another command, isn't there? Now take him down, put him in a big pit, and cover him with stones. It was a sign of disdain. It was a sign of disrespect. This isn't an honorable burial. This is like, put him under the stones. We don't ever want him coming back again. But now comes the contrast for what happens. Israel loses. Absalom's dead. That's it. Rebellion over. Nothing more to say. We move on with the next chapters. We do move on with the next events. No more Absalom. It's done with. It's over with. But if we read this story only as an Old Testament story, if we read this and look at this and fail to look further into God's Word, if we fail to look into the New Testament, if we fail to look at the one who was called the Son of David, we're going to miss the point. Think of these verses as they come to us in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, 1. Matthew's first words of the New Testament. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. What's the first thing the New Testament wants us to know? That Jesus is the son of David. Matthew 15, 22. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Mark 10, 48. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. John 7, 42. Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem? the village where David was. And as Christ is on that journey to Jerusalem to be lifted up between heaven and earth on a tree. Remember the crowds? Remember the crowds of Matthew chapter 21? The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Paul. Romans chapter 1 verse 3. This gospel concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. What does the New Testament want us to understand? That Absalom is not the last son of David. There is another son of David. Jesus Christ. How does he compare to this Absalom fellow? Well, first of all, we could say the following. We could talk about the submission of Christ. I know Dr. or Reverend Vandermeer mentioned that last Sunday morning, the submission of Christ to the Father. But listen to the verses. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And certainly, Philippians chapter 2, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant to do the will of the Father. You have a son in Absalom who is the, the epitome of rebellion, taking a stand against David. His father. But you have Jesus Christ. The true son of David. In submission to the father's will. And as we take this journey of these trees of the Bible. As we take that journey to the cross. As we see him hanging there. Between heaven and earth. Certainly we do not see an absolute. We do not see one who is there out of rebellion against the Father. We see one there who is in full submission to the Father. Secondly, we think of the death of Christ. Think of how Christ died as compared to Absalom. Absalom's hanging from that tree, struggling three darts to the heart, and he's still kicking He's still alive. You've got to give an order to further execute him. How much different Christ? I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Oh, what a contrast to Absalom. Hanging in that tree, struggling. To our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Cries out, it is finished. And then we read these words, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The death of Christ in the contrast to Absalom's death. 
or we can think of the victory of Christ. <laughs> Here's Absalom in full defeat, being buried underneath tons of rocks. Here's Christ behind a stone laid, but yet what happens? The stone is rolled away for what? He is alive. Is Absalom? No. His bones are somewhere under a great pile of rocks, somewhere in the forest of Ephraim, somewhere. Did Absalom's acts lead to any sort of victory? No. But Colossians 3 verse 15 reminds us that in his death, Christ triumphed over his enemies. His death is not a loss. His death is a victory. His death is conquering anything but for Absalom. How do we know that? They all slunk away home. Israel goes home. The leader's dead. 